With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to this Ibrox. It's your Rangers podcast. And every so often... Um, we we managed to secure an hour or so of a, a former player. Um, we managed to secure a, a former player for, for a wee chat. Uh, my name's Scott Patterson, and as always, you're welcome to this big interview. And I'm really pleased to say that joining us for this big interview is Kevin Thompson. Hello, Kevin. How are you? Hi, mate. Uh, yeah, all good. Thanks. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Yes, nice. thanks. Thanks for finding the time to join us. I think when people stop asking you to come on these things is the time that you need to worry. So it's always... Uh, <laughs> It's always, it's never an issue to give up some time to speak to you boys. Absolutely. So we're going to speak to you about various different things tonight. Where you are now as person, manager, however you want to go there. And um, we'll do a bit about your time in the training centre and of course when you played with the club. But I think I'd like to sort of rewind it right back to, to Kevin Thompson, the wee boy. Um, why a footballer? What, what made you be a footballer? Uh, so I suppose answering your question, hopefully I'll give you a good answer. Going, going right back. I suppose the, the, the Kenny Kevin Thompson growing up, brought up in Peebles and um, a Kenny family boy, really a country boy, working class family. Um, like to think that my humbling roots really and, and my upbringings made me the person that I am. Um, and you get life lessons off of loads of different people that are influential in your life as you move forward because yep. I suppose what you know at 37 isn't it what you know when you're getting opportunities to go up the park and get up to Naked or <laughs> opportunities to go in boozers, etc., and you're needing yeah. good pals and good guidance. So, um, so I so starting off at Peebles really as a kind of I don't know if people would call us chukters or no, but kind of country boy, <laughs> um, but, but proud of my kind of upbringing and and um, and the, the livelihood I suppose I had when I was young. Do you know what I mean? Like mum and dad looking after us, traveling all over the country to give us opportunities to play. So, um, I now feel their pain because I've got two young kids myself that I'm like active service, stroke dad, stroke coach, stroke. <laughs> It just feels like I just walk on me like I'm the doormat, really. Um, but now nah, I, lo- I, lo- I love every minute. Yeah, and so it's funny you mentioned about the maybe the your, your parents looking after you. I, th- I think everyone who follows you on social media and, and maybe 
follows you um, via your, your KTA arrangement. You've obviously got the academy now, so you know the importance of um, the importance of parents in a, a young footballer's life, sort of taking them places, whether it's training, matches, um, special occasions. So you you kind of you appreciate that, and I think that it sort of speaks to your point how you never took it for granted as such so early in your life. I suppose you do. I, I think when you're immature and you and you hopefully be able to like look back fondly on mum and dad and the commitment that they gave. You know what I mean? I've obviously been a people's boy and I played at Hutchie Vale for I think six, probably five or six years in my, my kind of youth before obviously I signed for Coventry. Um because obviously the, the, the kind of grassroots and the pro academy game was different from when I got brought up. But yeah. the one thing I would I would pride myself on um, and I think my mum and dad would be proud of it is like being humble and respectful. And I, I it was a big part of my team talks when I was at Kelty, so it's not, I didn't just say it lightly. Do you know what I mean? I'm saying that to 20 guys in the change room, and I, I believe that I know you can't please everybody, especially when you when you one day get lucky enough to play for a club like Rangers. You, you've yeah. got to understand in the industry that we're in that, that people will not like you. Um, but the people that matter to me are the ones that, that I respect their opinion, and, and I think they're the ones that if you were to ask 100 people that are quite close to Kevin Thompson, they would they would say that, you know, I'm a working-class boy, a hard-working lad, I'm a grafter, but I'm humble and respectful. And listen, I cannot be who I am without having the, the nasty streak within me and that competitive edge. But when it comes to being the person that I am, minus the football, I'd like to be classed as a humble, respectful lad. And listen, I think a lot of people think that um, you, you kind of started at Hibs, and I think a lot of people remind you with the funky haircuts. Um mm-hmm. But of course, you and I both. <laughs> but I, I think a lot of people maybe sort of miss the fact that you actually started off, if you like, um, down south at Coventry. How did that move come about? Well, I, because obviously we got brought up in an environment when we were younger that like grassroots was the be all and end all, really. So Hutchie Vale were the, and they still got a good reputation, not quite as good as they obviously did back in the day. But um, there's obviously loads of fast growing boys club. You mentioned one obviously before we started Gear Talk. So there's, yeah. The Gearedock was a team that I'd never heard of when I was a kid, really. Do you know what I mean? But we've got a lot of kids that come from Gearedock and a lot of talented kids as well. So, like clubs like Edinburgh South, that my kids both played at grassroots before they went into the boys' club, like one of the fastest growing clubs in Scotland. They never even existed, really, um, when, when I was a kid. So, I suppose the path that we had was, was Hutchie Vale would probably replica what our Rangers or Celtic or a Hibs or Hearts or an Aberdeen or, or, or kind of one of the bigger pro academies as such, because um, they were kind of headhunting the, the kind of best talent, not just through obviously Edinburgh, through maybe through the West or, or down in the borders or whatever. Um, so I suppose my, my upbringing to that then never actually gave me an opportunity, believe it or not, to sign with Hibs. Right, okay. Uh, so Coventry, when I was 15 stroke 16, had probably the year prior to that, um, when it comes to that crunch time, had, had shown quite a big commitment. There was a guy called Richard Money who was the... Um, academy director at Coventry at the time and he used to come up and watch the Hutchie Vale games along with a lot of other scouts because Hutchie Vale were one of the teams to watch a lot of the scouts would go there your Rangers, your Celtics, your Hibs and Hearts and I never actually had another option but I actually signed probably back in the day a mega deal at Coventry um, yeah. compared to what the boys were but what I gave up at Coventry without telling you figures like yeah, yeah. any pride too much but to try and give you an insight I probably well, I gave up a four year deal at Coventry we're signing on fee that probably paid way over and above my first two years at Hibs as a professional. Wow. Um, I'm just trying to do the maths in my head because it's just <laughs> So I then had a mum and dad who knew how big an opportunity I was getting um, because Richard Money thought I was a star down there. They treated me like a star. 
Um, so for probably the year prior to leaving school, I used to fly down at the weekends and play and I'd go to, to watch the Coventry first team. Gordon Strachan was the manager at the time, yeah. enough, like Gary Max and all that were there, the Premier League club, even though they got they got relegated, actually, I think the year after I signed, it's sort of the year prior to me signing, and that was like Robbie Keane's. And yeah, absolutely. In the boot room with Robbie Keane, they just signed them and they ended up selling them. I think they sold them into Milan when I was, when I maybe I'd left Coventry, but they were they were a proper big club at the time, like fighting, fighting right up the top leagues. Um, so I think it, people will probably raise a wee eyebrow that I never really had an option to sign for Hibs, Hearts, Rangers or Celtic when I was a kid. I was quite small. Um, and then obviously when I left Coventry, when I found it difficult to settle to the kind of disgruntlement of mum and dad, knowing the opportunity I was giving up. And I, I kind of become a wee bit of a bum, a kind of typical teenager where I spent too much time <laughs> lying in my bed. Uh, and again, the disgruntlement of, to mum and dad that they wanted me to start getting out. And, and if I wasn't going to be a footy player, I had to start earning my keep as such. Um, and then I got a phone call out of the blue. There was a guy called George Mackey who was the under-18s coach at Coventry who was really good pals with Donald Park, who obviously was the... Yeah. The youth team coach at Hibs and had said that listen, this boy's not a bad player. Um, I would get him in if, if you could. And the Hibs knew all about me because they'd watched probably the scouts where he watched Hutchie numerous times. Um, and I quit a lot of the boys for that Hutchie team signed for Hibs, boys like Whitty, etc. Ryan yeah. Hardy, Rogo, I could rattle quite a few off. Um, and then obviously the age band above us were the same. Um, and then before you know it, I got an opportunity to go in and train for a couple of days, and dad took me in, and then the kind of rest is history, I suppose. It was um that was my I suppose one door shutting and another door opening and getting my opportunity to kind of showcase my talent in an environment that obviously growing up a Hibs fan, I was I was already quite excited to go there anyway, knowing quite a few of the boys. Um and thankfully I managed to, to grasp my, my opportunity. I think it's one thing we see quite a lot of as well, sort of young Scottish talent maybe not getting their opportunity up here and and sort of having a crack at it down south. One guy that instantly springs into my mind is the boy Wilson, who's went down to, to, to Aston Villa. I know he's had a sort of phenomenal season last season. Um, the obvious concern about losing these guys down over the border is that they almost disappear and pop back up here maybe six, seven, eight years' time with heavy pockets, but not a great deal of life experience type thing, you know? I, I suppose it's difficult. I, I've never been the one to have like a huge opinion on knowing that when you get to 35, every single player, I'm pretty sure, would want to play at the highest level possible, earn yeah. as much money as they possibly can and win as many trophies as they can. And I suppose it's an individual thing, whether you want to get to the end of your career and have played for prestigious clubs and won trophies or get to the end of your career and have enough money to give yourself some options in life. If you can have both, I suppose it would, would be every young footy player's dream, really. And then if you can maybe have one or the other, um, some would maybe rather one than the other. I suppose it's um, it's it is a difficult one because I've seen firsthand the type of money that, that these young lads just obviously using Rory as a, an example because I had him myself when I was at Rangers. Obviously with 13, Rory was actually my first team. A great boy, comes from great people, and he's going to a great club. Listen, he'll be the I'm pretty sure Stevie G will be the first to say like Aston Villa are not as big a, a club as Rangers, but the opportunities that the boys get down there plus the big contracts that these clubs can can afford to pay is. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one. And then your young player and your families that might find that Rangers is a difficult pathway to break through into the first team might yeah. feel as though going down south might actually give them a bigger opportunity. So I, I, I suppose I'm sitting on the fence a wee bit because I do understand both both ways. And yeah. I would feel like a hypocrite because I ended up having a no-bad career and, and getting a wee bit of both and being able to win trophies and sample big nights and, and play for big clubs, play for my boyhood team. And then 
to have a relationship that I've got with a club like Rangers is, is extra special to me. That, that I'll always probably do myself a disservice to like think how fondly the Rangers fans think of me because I probably never felt that when I was a player. Um, I probably felt like I got a massive amount of appreciation when I hurt my knee at Rugby Park, like actually how much I did bring to the party. Um, and, and I suppose later on in life, when I go back back to Ibrox and I went back to the academy, it's it genuinely was. It was it was back of the throat stuff. How humbling it is to to, to know how much the fans did think of you. Um, and I'm not so sure you get that at a lot of clubs. So no. it's um it's I know I'm, I'm, I like a waffle, but I suppose it's like me caring about all the kids. I'm desperate for Rory's, your Leon's, your Lowry's, all the boys in the academy that have, have, are getting opportunities and. Um, it doesn't matter to me if it hits Hearts, Rangers or Celtic. I want to see young Scottish talent doing well because um, I'm passionate about it. And I also understand how cutthroat it is that if you don't succeed and you don't take the opportunity sometimes when they do present themselves, that sometimes it can, it can, it can, you can almost cut your own throat at times because it's such a difficult industry. Interesting to hear you talk about the, um, the injury at Rugby Park. We'll come to that a wee bit later on. I think it was a game changer for your career. Um, completely changed your your direction sadly um we'll come back to you later on so you you rock up at hibs you're there with um i think what hibs fans will probably look back as as some sort of golden generation we are the obvious guys stephen whitaker of course who, who came to rangers later on uh, gary o'connor was in there riordan um your mate bruni was there as well um who i i think we'll speak about maybe as the as this goes on how did you find it in there i mean you, you'd know yourself you were a young lad but do you know what i mean the the, the focus was on you at that point because i mean you were flying good Group of Edinburgh lads, and he's were all doing very well at that point. Uh, I've always I try and present to parents when they come to my academy that like I think you've got a ceiling as individuals, um, whether you want to be fast, whether you want to be good at golf, or whether you want to be a football player. And I think if you're a grafter and you're giving one hundred and ten percent, and you get a bit of luck in life, because I think we all need that no matter what yeah. industry you're in, um, you'll reach your ceiling. I, I think there's a lot of talented people that didn't reach their ceiling because of a bit of bad luck or bad choices or or maybe what I would call them geysers a wee bit that, that kid on they're giving 110% but they aren't really um, so they might have the talent but then it's not backed up with the other bit so um, I, when I think back to my career I didn't overly think about it much and I suppose that's why I maybe enjoy doing these things because it, it brings back good memories is that we that group were ultra talented I think but at the same time we got massive luck because yeah. Hibs went through a transition where Bobby Williamson had to take a lot of money off the wage bill um, had to get a lot, of, a, a lot of players. You could argue that the young crop were maybe they maybe were better, and they maybe proved that they were better. But to get that opportunity, you had to have, in my opinion, a door open, and and the financial door was a door that opened for the young players. Do I think we would have all had good careers? Aye, but it might not have been at Hibs, and it might not have quite worked out the way it did. Um, and the next part is it's really daunting for young players to go to first team changing rooms. But see, when you go with five or six year pals. <laughs> and you have to go on a team bus and young team start 100% <laughs> I look back at some of the and obviously we're going to speak about some of the, the shite luck I suppose that I had um, yeah. to, put it, to put it politely yeah. um, but I would say looking back leaving Coventry getting an opportunity going to Hibs knowing some of the boys in there the type of personality I was when I was younger I needed to feel comfortable in my surroundings I had a bad experience at Coventry so it scarred me a wee bit so I had to go somewhere that I knew friendly faces and then it was the same, really. Um, I we had swagger. I we could back it up. But the the transition for a youth team changing room and at the first team changing room at Easter Road, obviously, because East Mains never existed. I do think your O'Connors, your Ryardens, who were ultra talented, top top players, and then the next generation of Kenny, me, Whitty, and Scotty, 
Um, but then people forget, and I'm not just mentioning because of my assistant, but my brother-in-law, Kevin McDonald, kind of was like lots of talented players. Then the next batch was we Jinky McCluskey, Jamie McCluskey, Stephen Fletcher's, like really talented, conveyor belly players. Um, so we kind of all ended up in that first team training daily together as pals, as I we weren't all best pals, but there was a camaraderie that, in my opinion, you sometimes get through that 16 to 18 when a youth team player, and you, they're, they're your type of pals that become pals for life. Yeah. Um, and you never ever forget and then sometimes when you move to different clubs you meet a load of, loads of associates and, and a lot of great lads and, and brilliant teammates but you maybe only see them once every five or six years and you, you struggle to stay in touch but normally your youth team pals are you sometimes grow that special bond and I, same again waffling I'm going to keep on saying it because I'm, I'm trying to hopefully paint a good picture um, a good insight but I do think that was on all of the boys' part, a bit of luck. And listen, we all had different careers and, and people will have their own opinion of how successful each individual was. But yeah. I, I, do, I do think, and, and I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the good Tibbs fans that look back in that period under Mogga, um, you know, the fast-flowing football we played, a lot of homegrown players probably never happened again, was was hopefully um, a good a good part of the club's history. So I want to fast-forward a little bit to, and listen, the reason you're here, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, January 2007, and there's rumours of um, Rangers looking at two guys along the M8. Um, and of course, we, we, were, we were very, very much interested in, in bringing you um, along Ibrox. And I, I think at that point, there was probably a, a, quite a, a strong interest in, in Scott Brown as well. A um, couple of things. I think in the first instance, I'd like to know how you, 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 sort of, how you felt when you found out about the interest. Um, do you think that there was a real interest in, in bringing Scott Brown along as well. And how would you feel if maybe the bothies had rocked up Ibrox back then? I suppose the because we were obviously joined at the hip at the time and we'd went through the, the kind of six or eight weeks, whatever it was, with a kind of link with every team in the country, I suppose, <laughs> or every team in Britain, should I say. Um, and we were probably back page of the papers near enough every other day. So, yeah. And obviously we had shared the flat together, me and Scotty, we had kind of come through the youth team together, we were kind of, we'd warm up together, we were, we were kind of almost holding hands, if you know what I mean. So I think in a fairy tale world, even though we're both probably no naive to think that that could just happen, if you know what I mean, but we probably were. When we were. <laughs> Never really had a worry in the world, we just loved playing footy and, and, yeah. and trying, to, trying to be the best we could. And, and obviously we did do everything together, so when... I think a lot of people probably know, but to, to give it, I, I genuinely felt that Walter wanted Scotty more than he wanted me, and I felt Gordon wanted me more than he wanted Scotty. So yeah, yeah. it's ironic to think that we both obviously ended up in a different direction, but um, I suppose it was a a unique but frightening, exciting, I suppose loads of words experience because you were, you know, Tony Mowbray was obviously at West Brom at the time and he's on the phone every night saying, why do you want to go to Rangers or Celtic? You know, you come in here, you still you go to Rangers or Celtic or do you respect to the teams, but you need to play them four times a season and you need to go to the pitches. And he says, like, we'll be in the Premier League, we're sitting top of the championship. Do you know what I mean? You'll be a Premier League player in five months' time and you'll rip it up here. So it's somebody that I had massively respected just kind of twisting your ear a wee bit and, and then you've got Walter on the phone with his kind of deep voice that I kind of knew all that well. I myself every time he phoned me. And then you've got Gordon, who obviously everybody knows what Gordon's character's like. He's got personality. He's always trying to take the piss out of you, basically. So I was, I was a wee bit on edge trying to watch my P's and Q's. And, and we also had other managers on the phone as well um, that were obviously at different clubs in England. So it was... I suppose daunting was probably the right word and probably no wanting to make a mistake and do the wrong thing or, or tell anyone the wrong their, the wrong answer, I suppose, when they were asking that they felt their club was the right one for you. Um, I did think 
probably didn't quote me on the time, but a week to 10 days prior to actually signing for Rangers, I genuinely thought we were both going to go to Celtic. Really, so, yeah? Aye, aye. I thought the deal was, we thought the deal was done. Um, the, the Willie Mackay, who was obviously our agent at the time, had said that Celtic had agreed a £5 million deal for the two years. We had agreed personal terms. We knew what contracts we were getting. We were getting identical contracts effectively because it was like a joint package. So we had went to the Man United game when when Nakamura scored for 30, 35 yards and yeah. sat in the director's box and we're kind of Peter Lowell's, the club's kind of special guest on the night and it looked like everything was was no signed and sealed, but it was a matter of just uh, dotting the I's and ticking the T's, really. Um, so to, to then a week or whatever it was later to, to finish training one day, to have a text message off Mr. Peter to say to come up and see him, to then tell me that he had accepted a deal, which was a difficult thing for Mr. P to say. Anyone that knows him, he's a, a man of few words and like standing the negotiate fiver off you. Um, I had a good relationship with him and I think that we're all there. Um, even though trying to get a pound off him was like trying to get a blood out of stain. But at the same time, I have massive admiration for him. He's, he, I go back a long time, but he kind of grumbled at the thought of they'd accepted a deal. And I genuinely, if I if had an opportunity to put a bet on who that deal was off, when he told me that he'd accepted a bid, I would have said Celtic. Because um, I genuinely felt that Celtic were the team that were pushing the hardest for me, the way wow. Gordon spoke, spoke to me. So, madness to think that he turned around and told me it was Rangers. And, and to be honest, it's, it's no doing any of the clubs a disservice. It's just how I felt as an individual, how they were kind of chasing us, if you know what I mean. Um, and I was over the moon. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go. He says, well, there's a there's an opportunity to meet the doc and Martin Bain, who's obviously the chief executive at the time at Livingston. Um, and you can go and do your medical. Um, he's like, do you not want to go home? Do you not want to think about it? Listen, you didn't need to go. We didn't really want you to go. But and I was like, no, nah, well, obviously everybody knows it was common knowledge that me and John Collins were going to get on very well. And it just it just felt like the opportunity, the, the opportunity to bubble. And listen, you, the harsh reality is whether it's um, right or wrong to say it was the option that was presented me at that given time and, and I'm not saying if it wasn't the Rangers if it was somebody else I wouldn't have said no but it was, I was just that desperate not to leave because I, I, listen everybody knows I love Hibs and it's, I'll never ever say any different whether Hibs fans like that or the Dinny but it was just an opportunity that felt like everything was bubbling up um, and it was just it just felt right to move and listen I think anyone that understands football for the three and a half four years I was there the achievements that we managed to achieve in that time was, it was the right decision and 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 now when I look back, it was um, it was one hundred percent the right decision to move. What was it like playing for Walter Smith, Kevin? Special. Um, he's a special man. Um, find it difficult speaking about him at times because he, he's he's a big part of my life. He's a big part of how I like to present myself. He's. Um, I just I just think when you play for a club like Rangers, and I know you use guys and and all the fans across the world are like. You cut them open a blue blood. That's non-negotiable, um, and, and anyone else is second. And the only team that matters is Rangers. The one thing I would say is Walters exactly like that, but the class and the dignity and the prestige that he carried himself, and the respect that he had of every other club, which ninety point ninety nine point nine percent of fans didn't like Rangers or any other club doesn't like Rangers. Yeah, but I think for people to respect Walter and like Walter. Just shows you how special a man he was. And I, I you know, I've, I've I've seen bits and pieces from from other players that were in and around the, the dressing room when he was there. Um, and I think he was always very careful at, at keeping maybe the younger group, if you like. He he, he had a, a select group of um, older players that I think he relied on quite often. I think he was very smart with how he kept the 
the younger guys in check and, and both feet firmly on the ground? Oh, there's, there's without doubt that if you ever got if you ever got carries away underwater, you would, especially me, <laughs> uh, you, would, you would know about it. And that, that, that's, I suppose, his biggest trait that I just, I'll, I'll say like about Whitey because he's a good mate of mine, but me and Whitey are totally different characters and, and Walter knew quickly without actually having to do anything, just his knowledge and understanding people and traits that, that I could have two barrels and he could give me the hairdryer right in my face and I would react to it and I would I would bounce back for it, whereas a Whitey, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying it if he, he's, he was a different character and, and Walter would know fine well that if he was to do something like that to Wits, he wouldn't get the right reaction off it. Um, yeah. And Wits was a wonderful player and he probably didn't need to give Wits it, but like any Rangers player and any football player, you plenty, you, we have plenty of bad games and you have you have plenty of times where you feel as though you're you're off the boil a wee bit and your form's a wee bit unwanted. And, and sometimes as a player, if I was maybe getting a rollick in and other players want to contribute, I think, why are they no bloody getting a rollick in, if you know what I mean? But I, I, I learned to understand just how special he was at man management because... People like Baz and Marcel and um, certain ones could could have that rock in. And there was other ones that I'm using White because a good mate of mine. I'm not going to need to say any other names, but there was loads of different personalities within the group. Yeah. That the Walter hairdryer certainly wouldn't have worked. And and he was meticulous in, in knowing Andy's time and when to give that rock in and when to know and when to tell you how wonderful you were and, and, and when to give you a kick up the backside. So he was, for me, um, the most special man I've met in my whole career just in how much class and how much respect people have for him. Do you think that um do you think that you 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 learned a lot I mean I, I appreciate you've learned a lot from him as a as a being, as a person, how you conduct yourself. Um we know that you're 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 currently out of work. Do you think that for for your perspective as being Kevin Thompson the manager, was there wee bits of of his persona that you tried to adapt within yourself for when you're doing your role? I think so. I think I think you you the one thing I always held on to thinking that I could be a good manager is when I started to get that wee bit older and I went down to Middlesbrough and then I obviously I, was, I felt like I was I was on my way out. I knew I was on my way out. I, I couldn't do what I wanted to do and I knew I couldn't do what I used to be able to do. I still felt as though I was a, a good player and I could play at a good level, but the demons in my head were telling me that I, I wasn't the Kevin Thompson that was 23, 24, 25 when I could uh, I felt like I could do whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. And Middlesbrough was a hard one because I never really, really recovered. But when I got back to Hibs and I went in with Pat Fenlon, it always used to stick that at Hibs and Dundee in the tail end of my career, that last two or three years, the younger players in the changing room, even older players in the changing room used to always say, Tom, see when you become a gaffer, go and just be the way you are now. And I thought, well, <laughs> And I kind of always felt, obviously, I was a captain at different clubs and um, always felt like I was I was a leader by example rather than this big, angry, you know, I, mean, I put my foot in, everybody knows how aggressive I was and I was like that in training, but um, no aggressive verbally, if you know what I mean. It wasn't a, it wasn't a really a trait of mine, like a baller and chiller, and it, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a bit the same as a manager. Um, but I think when, when, when I get angry, people know when I'm angry. Um, and I probably didn't want to be angry, but it's just it's a natural thing. Um, so I, I think off the back of Walter, off the back of Gordon, off the back of Tony, off the back of Bobby Williamson, the, the managers of Pat Fenlins, I could name a lot of them. Like Donald Park, when I was youth team manager, you know, I go back to George Mackey, I go back to Hutchie Vale managers. And then I didn't need to name them. The ones that I maybe never got on as well with and I didn't quite appreciate as much. Um, yeah. I learned a lot for the ones that I felt didn't treat me particularly well. And by the way, not just me, other players that I've seen 
but they never treated particularly well. And I always thought when I become a manager, um, I didn't want to be like what they were like with the players. Um, I want to be like what Walter was like when I first joined Rangers. We had enough players to put five teams on the pitch. Yeah, good teams. There was, there was loads and loads of players. And you looked at Murray Park and you could genuinely, there was 40 players training some days. I don't know how they managed it, but not once were players late. Not once did players not try and train in. Not once did players spit the dummy out and disrespect the players that were training uh, playing in the team. And to me, that comes from the leadership for Walter, how much respect they had for them, plus how much respect they had for the club. Whereas I've also been at other clubs, without naming them, that like once the manager starts to treat people wrongly, um, there becomes a wee bit of a divide in the training. If they players are massively respected, it ends up being detrimental to the manager because the players are really popular. Um, they're well respected, they've had big careers, and now all of a sudden they're getting treated like twats. They players look up to these players, and if the team's winning and they're getting a win bonuses and everything's going well for them, then that can sometimes be a great thing. But on the opposite flip of that, when things start to go wrong and then that manager then starts leaning on the older players or the players that he's not treated so well, I feel as though I've learned a lot in my young career, really, as a manager and as a coach, that some of the worst scenarios I've been in as a player has helped me, in my opinion, grow to even though I'm only a young manager, I'm just starting out, but but help me grow the tools and the the different variety of personalities you need to have as a manager to treat different people. Yeah. I remember being at Ibrox in, in March 2008 when you scored um your your one of two goals, of course, that, that, that you scored at the club. Um I mean, what's it like to score against Celtic at Ibrox? Special. It's, um <laughs> I suppose, and it's, it's a selfish thing, I think, that the game finished 1-0, didn't it? So it's, it's when you always look back, it's, um, I think if it was 3-2 and you scored a winner, if it was 2-1, or, or even yeah. if it's 4-5-0 or, or whatever, and you get in in the act, but I think um, to, to score and the game finished 1-0, but I probably like to think that I wasn't a selfish player the way I was, I was a team player, but yeah. I now understand why Boydies and Coisties never used to pass the bugger in training. <laughs> um, that feeling is... Um, and like you mentioned, I never got to sample it very often throughout my career. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but to to score and to, to have that five second spotlight just on Kevin Thompson, amazing. As um, as a as a special feeling. And listen, I've still got the pictures, and my kids go through wee spells where they think Dad was actually no bad, and then they go through spells where they think I was rubbish. So I've got a few. <laughs> wee things mind, I say that you listen, you've got a long way to go before you can score a winner in an old firm. Goodness me, you're absolutely right. And of course, I. That was the the. I think a lot of people unfairly um, remember you as the guy that nailed Robbie Keane twice in the space of a minute. And I, I think that there was a lot more to your game generally than that. Um, however, if he is still in your back pocket, it would be quite nice if you'd let him out tonight. <laughs> nah, no, that's not, I don't mind this. It's nice, and it's. It was. I suppose. When I look back at that game, and I think a lot of people forget it because of the Robbie Keane tackles and I got a lot of prestige out of it, I think a lot of people forget that, that they were coming to Ibrox, we were seven points clear with a game in hand, and if they'd come and beat us, and obviously all the talk was on Robbie Keane, and Absolutely. we started to find a wee bit of form, they went down to 10 men, we obviously Scotty getting sent off, we couldn't quite go over the line, a draw was probably a good result for us because they had to come and beat us, but to then score the way we scored, then obviously all about more do, even though Boydy should have scored. <laughs> then we're having a game in hand. Like to me, the tackles were irrelevant. Um, I never gave the tackles a second thought. We went straight away with Scotland and Barry Robson's and your Charlie Adams, etc., who'd obviously been in gone saying you were fucking boss the game and putting yourself about. But they obviously knew that's what I was. But 
the only thing I was bored about was three points and, and making sure that we were an hour step closer to the title. So even though you look back in different moments in your career, and that's obviously one which makes me laugh when a Celtic fan tweets me to say that you remember for two tackles. You know? <laughs> sometimes it doesn't bore me. Sometimes I think to myself, well, I actually won a few trophies when I was there as well. So when I was winning yeah. trophies, you won to win them. So I could have done that bad. But listen, I, I appreciate the banter. And it's um, to me, it didn't matter if it was Robbie Keane or if it was somebody else. It was just, I was wanting to lay a marker in the game like I did every game for Rangers. You know, I tried to impose my, my Kenny presence. And I felt that me as a player, that man niche in the market was a lot of players got that extra ounce of energy, wherever that comes from as the Rangers player, because everybody will think, well, you should have that anyway. But sometimes you just need that wee bit of fire in the belly and somebody to, to go and take somebody on to get the fans off their seat or somebody to go and put their foot in or somebody to maybe skip by somebody and, and, and have a shot for a distance and sting the goalie's palms. And all of a sudden, you know what it's like? You're a fan. You you sit and breathe it every, every week. And I felt like the team performed far better and I performed far better when I was really on an edge and, and that edge for me was was really imposing my power and presence within the game. I th- listen, I think it's amazing. I think it's fascinating to hear you speak about it like that as well. I remember lots of the old film games when I was growing up. So I was 28 um, back then and I think you always look back at, at Celtic games, at sorry, special moments in Celtic games and we could we could all rhyme them off. That Those tackles always come up when the old film games are on, always, do you know what I mean? I mean, if, if it's not sort of Jock Wallace appearing with the, the sort of battle fever on sort of comment or or old goals that, that we, we see previously, the Kevin Thompson tackle on Robbie Keane always appears. And I think you're absolutely right. It almost takes the shine off of the goal you scored that day and how, how well you played that day. I, and do you know, it's, I, it's, it's, a, it's a shame because I think there's a, there's a, a huge amount more to your, to your game than that. Um, UEFA Cup run. Uh, we obviously had a, a wonderful run in, in the Europa League um, last season. Alas, didn't come back with, with the winner's medal and, and didn't have the, the proper opportunity to come back and celebrate it in Glasgow. What was what was the, the journey to Manchester like overall? I think we, we last season we heard a lot about how um, the team back then almost boxed ugly to get there, which I think is a wee bit unfair on, on the guys that were involved. Oh, that's a, I think... I think when I've heard a lot of players and ex-players and, and other people talk about like trying to compare the two teams and, and the different listen, it's impossible. Um, so one thing I tried to to say, and I, and I mean that for the bottom of my heart, is that I was just supporting the boys and desperate for them to win. And if it meant that the 2022 team in Seville were, were the winners and the 2018 were forgot about, I know quite well that how important this club is to people and they never forget any of the players or the teams and the teams that were good. That's why it's a special club. So I think a lot of people think that if you win a treble, you you didn't quite, it's a green-eyed monster, you didn't want to see anyone achieve as much as you achieve. Where I, I was the opposite. I was I was actually gutted and felt a wee bit sick for them, just how we know a few of the boys. And by the way, no known a lot of them that well. Um, obviously, I played with Griggsy, who I've kind of been brought up with, and um, played with, obviously, Steve. But we've been in at the club and getting to meet Ryan Jacks and playing against Ryan and Scott Arfields and, and knowing some of the staff and actually knowing as a player who thinks back to how much luck and how much effort and how much resolve and and just how much dedication and sacrifice you need as a as a as a player, or never mind a Rangers player, to yeah. give yourself an opportunity that is you could argue it's almost like trying to win the Euro Millions getting a, a, a <laughs> final. And I genuinely thought in 2008 it was impossible. 
So for the boys to then go and achieve what they achieved last year was remarkable. Um, I suppose looking back, and, I, and I've never really watched the game back. I've seen a couple of clips. I've got a few photos in my games room that give me wee reminders when I'm in having a game of pool with the boys or whatever. But um, I suppose the, the wee difference that I would say is that the team that the current team who done unbelievably well were, in my opinion, like off the cuff, they could score at a blinking eye. Yeah. Um, and the and they were a brilliant team with loads of real top players and, and they got the credit that they deserved because I think the, the fans, the support that they boys had last year was, was unbelievable. Yeah. And if you take that back to 2008 and it was exactly the same, I think over in Florence, I think I think going back to, you know, beating Leon 3-0 and I, I suppose that's the only wee bit that I would flip when you said I think that's a wee bit unfair is that that Rangers team in 2008 scored three goals in France yeah. in the Champions League. It scored two goals against Stuttgart in the Champions League at home to start off with three points. Yeah. Um, it then scored two against Werder Bremen at Ibrox. It scored two in Sporting Lisbon. And I think there's a perception that that team had one shot at goal every single game and won Absolutely. one all, which yeah. I think is a wee bit unfair. But that's no meaning that then that team was better than this team. I just think that they were both brilliant teams, both got top managers. One had the greatest of all, in my opinion. Um but I was a voucher for Stevie's team. I was desperate for him to do well. I was desperate for the boys to do well because I wanted the club to do well. Um, and then when Gio come in, I was desperate for, for Gio and his staff to do well because I know how much luck and, and, and I know how much you put your reputation on the line as an ex-player for an opportunity that hot seat. And if it doesn't work out for you, you can almost tie your reputation. So I was I was desperate for the boys um, to, to go over the line and... And in my opinion, like it was gut wrenching, just just quite how it how it finished. Then. Yeah, listen, it was a it was a horrendous um, way to, to end both both of these cup finals. Indeed, two thousand um, and eight and last year was um, I a bit of a challenge. Um, Rugby Park, um, you you mentioned it sorry off the bat. Um, Kilmarnock, we we go there and win convincing win. If memory serves me right, you got a shocking injury, a really bad one. Um, I just wonder, with hindsight, um, if you think you were maybe knowing what you know about injuries now and how medical science has changed since then, if you think you were lucky to play to a standard again after that injury being so poor as it was. I always find it hard to, to speak because I always feel as though, like when you you speak about you as a person, and it's sometimes nicer when other people say it. But I've always been hopefully humble in my opinion and respect. I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else. Just my personal opinion was that. What I managed to achieve in my career was 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 done through having to jump through a lot of hoops. Yeah, you know I mean, broke my leg at Middlesbrough four times, two cruciate ligament injuries before I was twenty four, um, and obviously when I was growing up, probably sixteen, seventeen, when you done your ACL, it was like it was like the worst thing in the world. So yeah. for me at twenty three at Rugby Park, to know lying on that pitch that it felt like I'd done exactly the same in my left knee as what I'd done in my right knee. And I genuinely, like, it took me not just psychologically and mentally to get over the one at Hibs to then get back to a level where I captained the club at 21 to then earn my move to Rangers, to then grow my stature at Rangers and, and win over the fans and try and cement yourself in the team and become important to the team um, and be value for money because at that time, a couple million quid was a lot of money, especially as Scottish players with Rangers. It's, listen, it's a drop in the ocean now. This is, you know, people are paying it for, for reserve players now. But same again, you can't you can't compare different because that's just what the market is. Um so it, to hurt my knee at 23 after I'd recovered and I'd worked really hard, not just mentally but but physically, um I felt I was I was I didn't say this lightly, 
because I respect everybody else, but I felt as though what I was, I was as good as anyone in the country. Yeah, you were. Um, and I could run, I could tackle, I could play. Um, I was really aggressive. Um, I'd done, in my opinion, the work in the middle of the pitch for two players, um, and that's why we could play with Mendezes and yeah. Davos and Fergies because they couldn't do what I could do. Listen, I couldn't do what they could do, but I knew Barry coming back for his ankle injury, and I remember Sir David saying, he was like, who's going to be playing with you? And I said, well, well I'm, I'm, no, I'm no budging. Because <laughs> I felt I was becoming the main man, do you know what I mean? I was, yeah. And that's not me saying I was better than Barry or Steve or any of these players, but like I, the niche in the market that I was creating was, I felt I was becoming a real good player. Um, and then to hurt your knee, it takes you seven or eight months to try and recover. And, and then you do recover. And obviously, I think a lot of people forget that we, we won the league in the cup, so league and cup double, um, the season that I signed for Middlesbrough, um, and I think I played 43, 44 games that year. Yeah. I think a lot of people forget that normally when you're a Rangers player and you move on, it's either for big bucks or um, you're kind of surplus to requirements. Um, so to, to win a double and be kind of have recovered from that horror injury and then kind of rebuild yourself again to try and build on your reputation to then move was... You just it's hard not to look back and feel a wee bit sorry for yourself in hindsight yeah. even though I've, I've got no regrets and I'm delighted with the, the career that I had but I, I did feel my talent and my ability was I don't know if it's the right terminology but I, I felt it was well underachieved for the quality that I had I'd say you know it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about the injury one one of the things that we've spoke to Ian Durant previously on the on the podcast and one of the things he spoke about was how the, the battle to get back to a standard of fitness um is the the sort of the psychological part of that is just as challenging as trying to get your body back to a standard that you know you can take a 50-50 with Kevin Kevin Thompson in the training Monday to Friday. You know what I mean? That in itself can be just as much a challenge as trying to get yourself built up and and physically strong. I think the, the biggest thing for me, look everybody's different and that's why you can you can never compare and Durante's injury was was, was was shocking. Um, me like used to give me the book every time I seen it. Aye, absolutely. Another astute kind of thing that Walter done. You know what I mean? Having boys like Toysties and Geranties around us lads and and teaching us the tricks of the trade and the standards that's 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 expected. Of you, you know, like you think of John Gregg being in the training ground all the time and quickly telling you if Saturday's performance wasn't good enough because you <laughs> maybe only beat St Mirren 4-0 he said I would have took 10 off of them if I was playing and then you had you know, your Sandy Jardins and that do you know what I mean and yeah. it was just it was a special place to be and I suppose a real astute clever wee things that a lot of people didn't see having people like Durante but the, the bit that I would say for me a wee bit different for Durante is the aggression part and, and me putting my foot in again was, was the easy part for me the hardest part was the snowball effect of You've now got two screws in both your knees. Your body's changing. You're not quite as lean. You're not quite as that split second at elite level. You're not just quite there. So you're, yeah. you're, you're I'd worked really, really hard um, this, this summer before I went to Middlesbrough. And obviously I thought I was going to be, I did return as a Rangers player because my mentality was that you win the double, you play well, you get your summer holidays, you work as hard as you possibly can in the summer holidays to be even better next year. Yeah. And then you put, winning a title and winning a cup and playing the Champions League, you park that straight away and you have a day to celebrate, a day to unwind, and then you're back in the gym grafting again to be even better for the next again season. So the hardest part for me was that the graft bit was easy to get up and do it. Yeah. The hard part was that my body was failing right. and I was having to battle 
different parts of my body breaking down and starting to feel the aches and pains, even at 25, 26. Um, so the hard work within a body that was struggling to cope with that hard work was was tough. And, and statistically, I've, I've never actually looked at it, but there's, there's a reason why I was kicking about for 15 years and only played 350 games. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Whereas I've got no disrespect to anyone else, but 350 games nowadays when boys are turning 50, 60 games a season is, is not a lot of games really. No. But when you look at probably two crucial ligament injuries, retiring at 31, four broken legs at Middlesbrough, 350 games for me was probably no bad achievement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I think a lot of people um, sort of forget about the, the injury troubles that you, you did have when when you went down to Middlesbrough. I think it's it's quite clear that it was maybe not a move that you particularly wanted to see through at that point. Was it something that probably wasn't forced upon you? Did you see maybe a, a pathway to English Premiership or maybe more first-team football at that point? Well, I, I don't know if a lot of people don't know, but Tony Mowbray had, the, the season prior to me moving to Middlesbrough, um, West Brom had obviously got promoted. They were in the Premier League and um, and Tony was back on the phone and, and they, they'd put, I don't know if it was official or if it was kind of unofficial, but they, they would, they'd put a big bid in, I think in the regions of five or six million pounds. And I remember Walter pulling me in saying, listen, I know you'll know, um, West Brom, Brom have been on the phone, but the, the money that they're talking about, no chance. And I was like, I'd heard. And, and obviously at that time I was playing, I was back fit. I was a big part of the team. Um, I'd recovered kind of from my knee. And I, the first thing I was thinking about is like, you're almost like, I'm probably three quarters up the squad in terms of finances and in terms of like deal. I've got two years left. The new deal felt as though it should be on the horizon because that's normally what happens. It's the same in the modern day game. You, you very rarely would let one of your kind of assets and, and one of your kind of regular starters run down to a year. I know obviously the club have got that at the moment with, with obviously certain players, but but back in the day, that was probably less of a thing. If you yeah. probably had players that were sellable assets, you would, I've seen, well, even at Hibs, we were still had four years left on our deal and then Rod Peter was ripping up and giving you a new five-year deal because obviously <laughs> it would bump your money up and it would give them more bargaining power when it comes to obviously transfer sales. So I suppose when I look back going to Middlesbrough was that, it come out the blue a wee bit on my summer holiday. Um, I had Gordon on the phone, obviously, to say that there was a kind of unofficial list of players going about England that were available for sale. Right. Um, whether that was gospel or no, that's that's obviously what Gordon had said to me. And I, I found that a wee bit, I kind of took it like a pinch of salt. Yeah, yeah. But genuinely, they think I would obviously be one that would be leaving. But a lot of people don't know, no, and it's, I didn't want to sound like a broken down record as if I've got a wee bit of bad luck. But because I signed in January, your Nazis, your Davises, your Whitakers all signed summer transfer. So mm-hmm. I actually signed a four and a half year deal when I signed for Rangers. But see, if I had signed in the summer, I would have actually signed a five year contract probably for the money that was that they paid for me. And it would have then meant that I would have had two years left on my deal. Right, okay. One. So see all that other crappy players, I was probably the most vulnerable for the club. Yeah. Um, when you look at like that young crop that potentially could go for money. So and I've never had this as an answer. I'm just, I'm just, it's just my opinion of how things worked out. Um, because I know I was Walter's boy and I knew how important I was, or I felt how important I was to the club, especially of the previous season, winning the double, like we mentioned, to then feel like things had changed slightly and the goalposts had changed, and all of a sudden the club were quite happy. And to be fair, back in the day, a year left in your contract when any club could have signed me for free within five or six months. Two million quid was probably no bad money for considering the club had paid two million for me. But at the time, I was like a bit miffed that Middlesbrough were able to afford to pay me this contract 
and Rangers kind of weren't offering me the contract. So, and obviously, we all know, obviously, in hindsight, in a year's time, the club went through the, the troubles yeah. that they went through. But at that time, we never knew anything about that. So it was a difficult situation. It was kind of like, mm, kind of scratching my head a wee bit. And it was either security at Middlesbrough because of the injuries that I'd had, and it would give me an opportunity to retire and and, and, and be financially secure, or I was on a good wage at Rangers and I was loving every minute of it. Um, but I was a wee bit miffed that there wasn't a new contract sitting on the table, really. And, and I, I'm not blaming anyone because in hindsight, knowing what happened, obviously, 12 months later, I could understand why there wasn't a new contract on the table for me and the club probably couldn't afford to give me what they probably wanted to give me. Um, so I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I probably am hoping is that it's another scenario in my, my career when I look back, thinking that I was a wee bit unlucky because if Rangers had potentially not went through the troubles that they went through, I could have easily been sitting here playing eight, nine, 10, 12 years as a Rangers club. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and you know, I think to, to put that in perspective, you were, you were, there at the same time as um as guys like Davis who of course has, has been away and, and is now back so um it's it's frightening how that that time has passed almost so quickly and indeed what's happened since since 2012 as well just quickly on Middlesbrough how did you find that transition from the goldfish ball of Scottish football where you win you're a legend you lose you're out in your ass for weeks um Middlesbrough I well I Middlesbrough is maybe a bit of a what were the expectations going down to Middlesbrough is maybe the better question? I suppose, obviously, because they, they signed quite a lot of players with big profiles, there was an expectation, obviously, that they were going to try and get to the Premier League. Gordon had said, listen, I'm signing you as a Premier League player. I can't believe you're available, really. Um, but um, we, we, we were obviously desperate to get the deal done. So I, I think, and it's, I, I always feel a wee bit, I feel a wee bit rude sometimes when I speak about Middlesbrough because, listen, a brilliant club, Great facilities, great place to live. Um, yeah. We loved it down there as a family um, because you mentioned the fishbowl, the kind of the expectation of your everyday life is always under the microscope. Um, whereas in Middlesbrough, you're just another guy in the street, really doing there, and, and you didn't really get much prestige. There's no real recognition that comes along with being that. Listen, you get recognition, of course you do, and it's it's a, it's a brilliant club, but not at the same degree as what you obviously get walking about the shops in Glasgow. <laughs> I can imagine. Or, 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 <laughs> and obviously, listen, the games change with social media, so the players are, are they're, they're kind of, it's 24-7 now, isn't it? Whereas Aye. there was a reason why I stayed in Edinburgh, because I wanted to take myself away from Glasgow, and I wanted to go to work, I wanted to train, I wanted to come home. I'm, everybody will know I'm quite a private guy, and I didn't overly like the limelight. Uh -huh. um, you probably either be pictures of me lifting the trophy somewhere but I was always at the back of the queue me I was never at the front I was in changing rooms if you've seen title winning or cup winning photographs I'll probably be somewhere up in the top right hand corner <laughs> just my wee I suppose in hindsight but Middlesbrough was a good thing for for me as an individual and then the kind of family life that we've got Jackson was actually born in March and um, we were playing at St, uh, St Mirren and the manager I'll not tell you the story but he forgot to take me off when my wife was labour. He told me that I had to play because it was an important game, so I teed everything up to jump in the car. Um, anyway, quite long story short, we, we obviously Jackson arrived and then I moved in the summer, but to then have a newborn obviously down there and moving away from home for the first time was was yeah. a challenge. But I have to say, it was we loved every minute. Of it. The, the, the bad bit was I wasn't doing there to, to kind of relocate as a family. We were doing there to play football. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and, and I suppose the, the football part with the bad luck that I had, obviously, on the injury front, um, was was I think tarred my reputation with the with the fans and 
I think it's easy for any Middlesbrough fan that probably doesn't like us to say that I was rubbish and I was this and I was that. But I'd like to think if they maybe broke things down and, and I broke things down and it was a kind of like mutual agreement, it, it, like it being a wee bit of bad luck on both parties, you know what I mean, spending that money on me and I, I wasn't a kind of an expensive dud, I suppose. Um, but I'm not so sure that was through my talent or, or through any of my doing, if you know what I mean. I just think it was a bit of bad luck on, on both parts. So. I think I mean it's safe to say the Middlesbrough um, move probably didn't go as 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 you would would have wanted to go for a variety of different reasons. Injury was a, was a, clearly a problem, um, and you come back up the road and it's a, another spell at Easter Road. Your Dundee Hibs, and then it finishes in in 2016 where a, a couple of games for for Trinent. Um retiring. What does that mean for someone so young to be hanging up the boots? For me, I was for me in my head, I'd probably crossed that bridge quite a lot since I was probably 25, 26, 27. I'm not quite so sure my wife would be in agreement that it was, <laughs> <laughs> that it was, um, that it was something that I was looking forward to. I'm not so sure she was. Uh, <laughs> and to be fair, like I'd, I always had this, I think it used to annoy my dad because he knows what I'm like and he, he, he knows that I'm a grafter. And I probably, the, I'd like to think I'm no spoiled, but I'm kind of opening up with as such, giving you an insight of what I'm like. I'm, I'm, I'm probably, the banterish part of me probably was like, oh, I'm going to retire, I'm going to do nothing, I'm going to play golf every day, I'm, like, I'm never going to work, I'm going to, I'm just going to enjoy my life. Mm-hmm. And then 24 hours later, I want a job. <laughs> You're bust. Um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I can't take the dogs to walk anywhere because they can't walk any further. <laughs> um, so I think the banter side of me would say that, oh, I'm just going to enjoy my life and I'll just dip my toe in here and there, but I just, I literally done, I think, I think about two, two and a half weeks after I left Trinent, I think late October, November type time, because um, I'm sure the academy started, I'm sure the academy is six years come November, and then I just threw myself into the academy because I think a lot of people think, so you have a good career, you're, you're this, you're that, you're quite a popular lad or whatever, but, but every player will tell you, and, and players that are far better than me, once you retire, some can go straight into having a job and sometimes the club that they finish it gives them a job off the back of it. So there's actually no gap where you, you might have a family holiday, but then you've got a job to go straight into. I suppose when I took the chance to go to Trinent as a kind of fairy tale and play with my pal and and, and it never quite worked out um, for kind of both parties, it, it left me a wee bit in limbo because all of a sudden you've took yourself away from the professional game. You've, yeah. you've, you've now not got a club and a kind of whatever, it's maybe no sporting director back in the day, a chief executive that quite likes your mannerisms and what you are and what you bring to the party and an opportunity to maybe work with a youth team or get a job straight off the back of it. So I suppose it felt a wee bit vulnerable would probably be the right word. And and a lot of people think, what oh, Kevin Thomas? I suppose I feel as though I'm a wee bit in that position again. Um, yeah. Off the back of leaving Kelly, it's probably quite, when I look, and I'm just thinking off the top of my, my head really, when I think of the, the scenario of reti- first retiring and having that limbo to start an academy is probably the same as taking the opportunity to resign at Kelly and taking a wee bit of a risk. Because, listen, I could have kept on playing if I wanted to. I did have options to keep on playing, but uh-huh. I'm not going to name any of the clubs that made me offers as kind of player coach or player manager, but it just never excited me. And I didn't want to be that person that got frustrated with football because I love it. And, and now there's no day that goes by that I didn't love football because my kids love it. I've got the academy. I've had great jobs off the back of retiring. It was a buzz to go back and take the under-13s, even though they're like 12-year-old lads, but I loved every minute. Then I moved to the 15s, the 18s, the B team, working for a brilliant club. And, and, and now I've got opportunities, unpaid opportunities, I suppose, just being a dad <laughs> to go and watch my kids at Hibs because they're both in the Hibs academy. So um, it's 
I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm one of the kind of teacher's pets that just loves footy and, and being involved in any capacity, whether it's watching games, doing the commentary, like I've done obviously last night at Ibrox for the for the West Ham game, is I just I just love footy, man. And listen, it's funny to hear you talk about the the, the that I think it was back then. Obviously, the coaching um, took a, a a big priority in in your life personally with KTA. But of course, it was back then where you did find yourself being invited back into the the training centre at Rock and Howie, and you were quite heavily involved. How did that move come about? How did you feel about it? And um, was it good being back in the weeds again? It was brilliant. It's, I suppose like when you actually. I, I've not got this gospel, but I think I think it's that's reasonably, and I'm sure Graham will not mind me mentioning that the 20s job was actually available. I think it might have been the development job at the time. Somebody had said to me, "You'll be perfect for that," and they'd sent it to me. So I'd text Graham Parks um, and said, "Listen, mate, I hope all's well." Blah blah blah. It wasn't like it was at the blue because Graham used to sort my cars. He still does. Okay. Um, and like, well, if he doesn't give me a good deal, then like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll not mind me saying that either. I'm always trying to haggle them for a lightning rod. You know, try to haggle them for a fiver. Uh, always, he's always looked after me. We just built up a good relationship. I actually used to give Graham my poppy strip right. all the time. And it's funny, I broke my leg with a poppy strip on at Middlesbrough. Yeah. I'd done my knee at Rugby Park with a poppy strip on. Right. But Graham liked the poppy strips. They were unique. And I'm thinking, I couldn't wait to get rid of them. Uh, <laughs> they were special for them, but no for me. But anyway, when I... When, I, when that job first came up, it, it said to me, listen, I can't guarantee anything because obviously Craig Mulholland, who I never really knew at the time, um, he's the academy manager. Um, he says, listen, I'll put a good word in for you. He says, what to do is send me your CV. And I was like, CV? <laughs> CV? Um, so I was like, all right. So we were actually in Spain at the time. So I said to my wife, I said, listen, I need a CV. I said, you need to type me something up. And honestly, I might as well have done it on my phone. It was terrible. <laughs> I didn't know where to start. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to write. Anyway, I'd sent it to obviously Craig, and Craig had mentioned that they had 500 million applicants for obviously the job, as you would expect. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and unfortunately, not quite the role that would obviously suit me just now. Blah blah blah. But if there's any other opportunities, I'll I'll keep you intact. And obviously, I'd I'd say to, to Graham, listen, if there's any other opportunities, that might have been a bigger role, but can any role would, would be good. And then I think whatever it was, let's say a year later, Craig had obviously had reached out and had mentioned that there was an opportunity to go back. So. It was a kind of no-brainer, I suppose. Um, yeah. When I, I could come through, him and Craig Robertson come through and kind of presented to me what what the kind of academy does. But to be honest, I, I wasn't really listening. I just wanted the job. I just wanted an opportunity to go back and and then kind of lend my I don't know if expertise is the right word, but lend my knowledge and and, yeah. and get my hands dirty and 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 get an opportunity to to drive through Postal again, I suppose. And, and <laughs> you know, one of the things that we, that we get a lot is is how the um, the facility at Murray Park is is just second turn. It's incredible to go back and forward there um, to do work every single day. Um, and I, I want to get your, your thought on the... We obviously have the B squad um, who, who are going to be taking part in, in the Lowland League for, for another season, this, this coming season. Um, and I want you to rely on your, your coaching expertise. How do you feel giving these guys the opportunity to play competitively at that level as opposed to maybe bounce games in and around the training centre? How does that improve their game both uh, mentally, physically, just that experience of, of playing competitively in that fashion? I think it's, I think that the, my biggest, I suppose my opinion, I know my biggest opinion, my, my thought on it was, because obviously Craig had actually mentioned it to me just no long before I'd left. 
Uh, we were just due to finish up in the summer and he had mentioned that the Lone League was obviously going to be a team and what were my thoughts on it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and my initial thoughts were that depending on the level of Rangers player at that current time and the age band of the player would dictate how they games look. And it's such a difficult thing. And I, I've not got all the answers and, and, and Craig's not got the, all the answers either, really, because sometimes you can depending on the calendar month and depending on how some of these teams are doing cup competitions, etc. plus depending on how our first team is doing, to what Geo needs, um, injury-wise, can then dictate how strong the Rangers team is. Do you know what I mean? So the games can sometimes be a wee bit false, but what I would say is um, because there's a lot of ambitious clubs in the lower league, it's worked out quite well. The problem is, and I didn't want to do any of the, the teams at the service because I've probably got mates that play with some of them and I've got that most respect <laughs> for, for the lower leagues is that some of the teams aren't quite at the level that would be a good enough challenge for a young Rangers player to then okay. find themselves playing on a Tuesday night, for instance, and then be good enough to then jump straight into Gio's starting 11. And my, my opinion of the academy is that if the academy is not there to to um, to feed the first team, I didn't see the point yet. And that's, that's my biggest belief, is that it's there to make sure that the, the fans hard earned cash and, and Mr. Parks hard earned cash isn't having to go and recruit a left back or a right back or a centre midfield player because the academy every now and again oh, can yeah. produce one. Um, that's that's my kind of belief in, in development foot. And if it's no feeding into the first team, then I, I, I get frustrated. Where I did when I when I worked in there, and I, I suppose I, I still do now as a fan. Um, I think the Lowland League now with Celtic in it, we have obviously Rangers in it, we have uh, Trinent now in it, we East Kilbride having good pockets. I actually think the Lowland League is very competitive. Yeah. I just think there's a level when you get to, and it might just be your Lowry's and your Kings now, that you wonder if they've just surpassed the Lowland League. So to find the level of competition that these, these lads are going to need, yeah, the young ones that are just coming in the academy and some of the ones that are maybe a wee bit behind your Kings and your Lowry's, um, like you look at like Cole McKinnon's and that, I'm not so sure it would have been good for Cole McKinnon playing this year, but yet yeah. him and Tom Weston have, have, have just produced brilliant moves. You know what I mean? Part of Thistle in the Championship, full-time, just around the corner, can still go in and get their provision in at the club. I think it's a brilliant move for both kids. Um, and it's up to them to go and grasp that opportunity. I just think it's not always perfect, but I'm not so sure it doesn't matter if you had a magic wand, you would ever get it perfect, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, one of the things that we're obviously getting there now is is how the the youth is is going to be involved next season. And you you refer to um, Leon King and Alex Lowry. I know King is someone who you're a, you're a huge fan of. I, I think what you now want to know is that how the the path for these guys is is clear. Is it clear? Um, are, are they going to get opportunity? And I think that's. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. They find themselves almost in no man's land a little bit. Maybe not being a starting um, eleven, but way too good for that B squad and, and that Lowland League setup. I had it. It's a it's a it's a difficult one because I, I've always tried to say, and like the the parents' evenings I found difficult when I was when I was obviously a coach, and I I, I used to argue with Craig that when the boys become 16, 17, 18 and they start to get paid off the clubs, we shouldn't be having parents' evenings. You know what I mean? Like they're <laughs> resilient, they need to stand on their own two feet. If they're not happy about game time or they're not happy about X, Y, or Z or a wee Bobby or Jimmy playing in front of them, then I think the personality that you need to be a Rangers player, they should be chapping on mine and Davy's door and asking themselves, no mum and dad asking. Um, so I found the parents' evenings quite tough um, yeah. to try and try and be difficult with the mums and dads to say listen it's Rangers <laughs> there isn't yeah. a pathway you know why there's no pathway because it's difficult but by the way if your son's a right good player and he's dedicated and he's got the right mentality he's got the right desire he's got the right talent 
and then he gets a wee bit of luck, he'd be good enough to play for Rangers. But by Get the way, chance. if he's no all of the above, because in my opinion, you need it all to play for Rangers. And all the kids get to Rangers because they get a great opportunity and they might be really strong kids within their age band and they, some of them have been in the academy, as you know, for eight, nine, ten years or whatever. It means nothing to me, that. To me, the bit that matters is that um, if you think that a club like Rangers, there's going to be an easy pathway or a crystal, crystal clear pathway to get into the first team and playing in front of 50,000 every week, then to me, you're a bit delusional and you should be somewhere else because to play for Rangers, you need to have the talent, you need to have the mentality, you need to nowadays have the athleticism and you need to be a right good player in your specific position or else there isn't a pathway. And I think a lot of people get caught up with the word pathway and game times. And to me, to represent Rangers, you need to be fighting every day to be the best. And that's the standard that's the, that this club represents. And whether you agree with that or disagree with it, if you disagree with the likelihood as Rangers is no for you, it'd be great if it was easy. If it was easy, we'd audit it. Yeah, absolutely. No. And I, I think that's a bit that when you get equal game time and you get the provision that the Rangers Academy gives to, to the mums and dads, as you say, mentioning like a lot of mums and dads will have supported the club or have people that support. Now all of a sudden they've got a laddie that plays for Rangers or a girl and turning up to Murray Park and the prestige that comes along with Umbrella that Rangers represents. I think a lot of them get carried away with that and they take their eye off the ball, which what really makes you a Rangers player. And it's no Craig Mohan, it's no Kevin Thompson. It's you. Yeah. It's you, your dedication, your sacrifice your willingness to go that extra yard. I say it to my kids all the time, go, they'll listen to me if you don't want to. If you want to be a Rangers player, you want to play in a telly like dad, see every changing room you sit in at the moment. Well, they like it, you, you need to be working harder than everybody else. Tough, Amazing. if you know. And see if you fail. Fail giving you your best. They fail because you want to blame somebody else or you want to blame a coach at the under-13s or you want to blame my parents even in the under-18s because I wasn't getting the right game. They make excuses. Grab the bull with the horns, graft, sacrifice, and see what it takes you. I'm going to speak to you about Kelty in a second. Um, you were in and around the training centre when Stephen Gerrard and his entourage uh, rocked up. What was that like, being around the training centre when these guys turned up? It was amazing. I, I never knew Stevie, really, when obviously when they first come in. I, 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 I probably hoped that I had a wee in because, obviously, Gary McAllister was Gordon Strachan's... Yeah. Um, I want to say... Coach, Gaz Pembridge, was assistant, I think, or Gaz, maybe the other way around. Um, but Gaz was obviously there and he was brilliant for me. He's obviously a Scottish player and a midfielder. Um, so I'd hope that obviously like a wee bit of interaction with Gaz would would give you a wee bit of interaction with the manager. Um, obviously, I'd played against him in the pre-season friendly um, under Walter. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd kind of come up against him without really knowing him. Um, and I think, I hope anyway, now that we've built up a a good relationship and listen he, he might never text me back ever again but <laughs> I, I hope that I hope anyway um, and I didn't want this to sound a bit kiddie thing because he's listening to Steven Gerrard he's, he's a kind of world class icon so yeah. to get a text message back or for him to open his door to you I think is, is, is massive deal. within itself right? it's a big yeah. deal so um, I think he's seen me within the academy and probably I'd like to think he he, he, he could sense that it was a challenge for an ex-player, if you know what I mean. Um, there is politics within the academy. There is different things that go on. And and, and by the way, loads of brilliant work, but there's ultimately, like any workplace, there's stuff that you didn't agree with and there's stuff that of course. Um, you find challenging. Um, and I think Stevie probably, he did say to me, to be fair, when I, when, I, when I sat in front of him, that, listen, if I'm going to help you one day sit here, 
I'll not be able to sleep at night if I didn't try and open the door for you and try and help you and, and give you the tools to to to, to one day one because I know that's what you want. Um, and then obviously I've been doing to Villa um, when I eventually did obviously get through the 18s to the B team. It gave me I was a wee bit unlucky if you feel feel like kind of the violin should be for Tom <laughs> um, because obviously I got through the B team through COVID. Yeah, and obviously I had a wee bit of a sample. Of, my very first team talk for for the B team was um, I had like your Doherty's, your Ross McCrory's, Jordan Jones, Greg Stewart. Aye. I basically took the reserves, but were all Aye. the first team reserves. If you know, what I mean, I think the only player that maybe started that day was maybe Josh McPake or Kai Kennedy. So it was literally a first team. Um, Big Bassey played left centre back, so it was like having wow. <laughs> me on my training pitch. Let's say on the Monday before we played Dundee United on the Tuesday, I was thinking this is me, this is what I need. Then standing in the seminar, doing my team talk, presenting what how the first team were playing to the first team players, getting feedback off the lads, because um, you were close enough and open enough to ask like like what was good, what was bad. Because listen, I'm learning. I want to learn off the top players. You know what I mean? Didn't you just tell me that it was great just because you like Kevin Thompson. Tip, be brutal with me because I want to learn. I want to be the best. Um, so I suppose I was a wee bit unlucky, but in hindsight, um, Steve opened his door for me, Mick opened his door for me, um, and anything I really needed, they were. They were at the end of the phone to try and help me. So I, I suppose getting that opportunity, I'll, I'll, I'll forever be thankful, really. I think people maybe wondered, um, rightly or wrongly, and you can go into as much detail as you like here, whether this is a fable or not, that you would potentially go down to, to Villa as part of his coaching staff. And then when Mick Beale, of course, rocks up at QPR, um, I think people maybe felt you may have ended up there. Nah, it was just paper talk, to be fair. And listen, I'm pretty sure if uh, I phoned the gaffer up and said, do you need a cleaner or if you need... <laughs> Someone to keep his uh, house. <laughs> somebody to give you some banter during the day. He's never given me a job. But uh, listen, it's, and I, that, that, that's just really where it, it stopped, really. Kind of like, I asked him if I could go down and spend a few days at Villa, obviously, from a pro license. He couldn't have been any more accommodating. He was brilliant. He treated us like kings. Brilliant. Um, and... I suppose if I was to do the same to Mick, I'm pretty sure that would be the same answer. Yeah. Um, but I'm not naive to think that they've got 500 million people that could work for them. Do you know what I mean? So it's um, the relationship that I built up with them, in, in my opinion, is, is really good. And it's, it's humbling on my part because, listen, they're a million miles further up the ladder than I could ever wish to be at the moment. Of course, I aspire to be as good as them, if no better, because it's, it's just my personality. Um but no, nah, I think when, I suppose from my, I actually said it to, to somebody in the press last night, we've only ever really been offered two jobs. Um, well, three really, the Kelly job, and I took it. Mm-hmm. And I asked Dean to phone up Craig Mahon to do it the right way because it's what I believe in. A lot of people think that everything's done underhand and it can be behind people's backs. But I, I quite like the fact of being different and being up front. The Kelly one obviously come at Christmas time. Um and they obviously approached Kelly to speak. I went down and spoke to them, obviously missed out on it. Felt as though, to be fair, it would have been a good job for us. I felt like I could have got them promoted in the championship. Yep. Um, and then the Rafe job come when I was at Kelly. So I think it's probably from my perspective, a lot of people say nay press is, is nay good and any press is good press. But I kind of sit in here a wee bit like four days a week off climbing the walls and see my name linked with every job and, and jobs that I'm not actually going for yeah. um, or applying for. Um, and then the hindsight of that is like a lot of people that maybe didn't like Kevin Thompson for different clubs in the country are probably thinking that I'm going for all these jobs and not getting them. So I'm a bit of a dud. So it's like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of two way street, I suppose. So it's, um, I, if the phone goes tomorrow and it's right opportunity, we'll, we'll look at it. And if it's exciting, then I'll, I'll, I'll be two feet in and, and, and everything, but that's the way I am. But at the same time, um, 
I didn't just want a job for the boys, if you know what I mean. It's 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 not the way I believe in. It's I'm quite happy to sit in the house and enjoy my family and and enjoy doing KTA um, and wait for the right opportunity. But it's Scotland, unfortunately, and I'm not, I didn't mean that in a negative way. But you sometimes didn't feel like you get what you deserve, if you know what I mean. Because what we achieved at Kelty without sounding big heated was was unbelievable. Really, fifth round of the Scottish Cup, twenty one points clear. We won the league in March. Um, we've only lost one game all season at home. I'm undefeated in the league all season at home. So it's like, I would have had a good budget. Of course we did, but no to the degree that some people would think. Um, and I suppose, and I suppose, I, I am showing my teeth a wee bit, I suppose, because I, I didn't feel as though we got the credit that we deserved. Yep. Um, me and my assistant, I'm a goalie coach, and all the staff, and all the players. Um, because I think people just have the the perception that Kelly have got loads of money and they just buy their way to success. Whereas... Um, I'm pretty sure if you asked a lot of managers that got sacked last year that were well back, they would tell you it's quite difficult to, 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 to win any title um, and be successful and put a good team on the pitch. Never mind um, just thinking that you've got a good budget and it's nice and easy. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of time. So what I do have, some of our um, guys in the group have given us some questions that I swore I would ask you. <laughs> um, first one, uh, who comes from one of our podders, Kyle McLean, and I'll quote him, given the absolute plethora Really, Kyle, for goodness sake. Um, given the absolute plethora of midfielders you've played alongside Ibrox, who was your favourite and why? Uh, it's a question I get asked a lot, and I always try and be respectful of all the boys because obviously I played with some brilliant midfielders. Um, and it's an easy one because it's a midfielder, I suppose. Yes, in my opinion, Baz is the best Scottish midfielder in the last couple of decades, bar none. A wonderful player, a brilliant captain, great teammate. Um, could do everything, Baz, really. But I had a soft spot for Pedro Mendes. Um, what a player. What a player. Um, just actually just done it on a live show for, for Boydie not that long ago. He was we called him Mr. Mr. Dolce and Gabbana. <laughs> I think I was still wearing G Star at the time and Pedro started <laughs> Pedro started rocking him with, with, with Dolce and Gabbana. But I'm sure he was sponsored on it. We were uh, we were spending all our wages on it and he was just rocking in sponsorship. And um, he just he just was I don't know why. I just I had a real soft spot for him because he just he carried himself with a bit of class. He was um, he was always he was always meticulously dressed. He was a wonderful player, yeah. um, and just a great human being. And I, I just grabbed, and it's not that Baz wasn't he or Steve Davis or, or any other player that I played with, but he just um, he was he was my favourite that I played with at Rangers. And never scored a shite goal. Oh, incredible! I, never I said, scored a shite goal. I, I said to Jackson, my, my wee boy, my twelve year old, he was scored a goal at Hibs or whatever, Sclaff one in the bottom corner and he's like, that's a great strike. I said, see if you want to see a great strike. I said, go on to the YouTube. I said, have you seen Mendes strike? I said, that's a proper strike. I said, until you can hit in like that, I said, then he speak to me. Um, and he was like, ah, Mendes strike? What what game was it? And I was like, 4-2. I said, it was the Mendes show. I said, go on to YouTube. I said, I can't believe you never watched it, Jack, because he watches everything. So he's gone, and he, he come back downstairs and he was like, dad, and I said, that's <laughs> then he come calling to dad when he slapped one in the bottom corner against Aberdeen under 12s. I said, when you go to Celtic Park and you get one roll back off Steve Davis and you can laser one for 25 yards like an arrow in the bottom corner, then you can say you can strike a ball. Yeah, some player, incredible. Um, Shug Nibble in the group asks, if you could pick a Rangers five-a-side team, who would you have in it? Um, obviously Mendes. Yeah. Well, I'd want to win, so I'd need to be, my coaching head would need to come on. Greg's the easy in goals. Um, probably witty at the back because... He can defend, he's got elastic legs, five or six, the pitch is a bit tight, so he blocks shots, plus he can score goals. Mendes in midfield. Um, probably, it's not a great balance, Baz and Mendes, because neither of them like to tackle, but I'd probably go Baz. So, Griggsy, Witty, 
Carlos Coelho would be good in five aside right enough. Cool. Oh, what he might need to get binned. Um, <laughs> um, so what is a sub? What is a sub? Weegsy, Carlos Coelho, all out, all out defender. Need that with a balance. Yeah. And I'm going to. Boydie's the ultimate goal scorer that I played with, but I think he'll. He's not in the best shape now, Boydie, is he? So he is not. He is not. People <laughs> looking great, and he's he's top man. But he's, he's I've seen him. I've seen him no long ago. He's put a couple of pounds on. He's got this back back end size of mine now. Eh? So um, I'll go. I'll go with Kenny Muller, which would have been a toss of the coin between probably Nazi, who might be a wee bit more mobile and a wee bit more tenacious in five sides. But I'm going to go with Kenny because he's. I think he maybe just edges it over Nazi. So I'll go Griegsy. Carlos Coelho, Mendes, Ferguson, and Kenny Moore. Oh, what a team that is. Goodness yeah. me. And saying that, if you saw the Masters um, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if Miller and Ferguson sort of gave each other a cuddle in the changing room after it, but I don't know if they'd be too impressed. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure. I didn't think Baz was pals with anyone. It's just Baz. That's, that's a brilliant top, top boy, but he's, he's, he never changes. The competitive instinct, you know what I mean? He's, he's just the way. And listen, Kenny's just as bad. Um if ever, if ever there was fireworks in training, Kenny and Baz wouldn't be far away from it. I can quite imagine. <laughs> Listen, we've only got two more questions to go, and I think the, the second last one is one that I think Rangers fans all around the world would, would probably want to know, and I, I think I know the answer from speaking you, to you tonight. Um, do you ever see yourself going back one day to manage the club if the opportunity comes up? I think you sometimes get a hard, listen, I know you didn't get a hard time off the Rangers fans, but I think people in football sometimes, listen, it's probably other clubs that, that you've maybe played for think that you you will never want to be the Rangers manager. I don't know. I just want to be the best manager I can possibly be. But yeah, I think sometimes even when you say it in, in black and white to people, they still don't want to believe you. Because listen, I'm not going to be the Celtic manager. The likelihood is I'm maybe not going to get an opportunity to be the Hearts manager. I'd, listen, I'd love to be a manager for anyone that wants me as long as it's the right fit. Um, but to me, like when I was a hips player living my boyhood dream, I got an opportunity to go to Rangers and um, financially it was better better opportunities it was playing in Europe winning trophies I don't think anyone that knows football whether you support Rangers Celtic Tibbs or Hearts could, could argue that I didn't make the right choice so for me I suppose in Scotland if I'm going to get to the top of the game minus the, mas- the national manager I would love to, to one day represent the club again right at the top and I feel I've got the right personality and the right characteristics to do that but I'm also not naive to think that I'm a million miles away from it um, and I genuinely put the Euro lottery on every Tuesday, Thursday when it gets to 200 million and I've probably got more chance of winning. <laughs> 50 million is not enough, by the way. Yeah, it needs to be 200. So only when it's a quadruple rollover or whatever it is. Uh, but no, I, I mean it in the, the kind of utmost respect that I would love to be the manager one day, but I'm not naive to think there's a million other people want to be the manager as well. So, um, so far I've made a good start. I think... I'd like to think when a lot of people hear me talk about football and how I present myself, they, 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 they appreciate the way I am. I don't do it for anyone else apart from the way I want to perceive myself. Um, but I also know there's there's another million wonderful coaches and managers out there that would yeah. give the right arm to be a Rangers manager. So it might never happen. I might never get another opportunity. I took a risk when I left because I knew, and I genuinely had sleepless nights about it, I knew when I was taking the Kelly job, hence the reason why I took over a week to decide um, that when I left to go to Middlesbrough, I never thought I'd get an opportunity to go back. I did. When I got back, I loved every minute of it. When I took the opportunity again to leave again, I knew driving out the gates for the last time that I might never get another opportunity to go back, which yeah. which plays in your heart strings a wee bit. But listen, you cannot you cannot live, and I never will live in the respect of regret and 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 
overthinking too many different scenarios. You just have to take the bull by the horns. If I was going to be the Rangers manager one day, I felt I had to leave the academy to to step my own two feet, to put a team together, to try and win trophy, to try and build up my reputation within the game, playing for three points. And and I have done that, but at the same time, I've done it at League Two. Um, I know I've still got a long way to go. I'm learning all the time, but I'll give it. I'll give it my best shot. And listen, last last one in the interview, which I have to say has been absolutely fascinating for me, by the way. Um, Kevin Thompson, in the current climate, what's happening with you? What, what are you doing? I'm getting on the dole. Um, <laughs> if ever there's any near podcast, give me a shout. Out. <laughs> You're on. You'll only ask me twice, mate. You only ask me twice. Obviously, I met I met Dave on the and Stevie actually on the on the gantry last night, and let's uh-huh. the same with them. They're like, "What are you up to?" And I'm like, where, where, where's the next job? I'm like, I've not got one. I say, so any any live nights get me get me involved. <laughs> um, I, I, just, I just have to be patient, I suppose, and, and it's not a good trait of mine. Um, I feel a lot of people are a lot better. Well, my, my assistant is obviously my brother-in-law as well. He's, he's the kind of brains behind the operation at Kevin Thompson Academy. Um, he kind of runs it all now, even though we do it together. Yeah, yeah. I'm there all the time. He kind of presents the sessions now with the kids and, and kind of runs them. I mean, we, we, we kind of run about daft, if you know what I mean, together, but he kind of... He organises everything when it comes to the actual description of the sessions now. Um, and I feel a wee bit, I feel, I don't think I have, but I do, there's a wee bit at the back of my throat that kind of feel like I've let him down a wee bit because obviously I'm sitting, I'm kind of enjoying a wee bit of time with the family. I enjoy my holidays with kind of three days a week. We only really work 12, 15 hours a week. And I know that he's desperate to get back in like I am, but, and I'm not saying that it would take a different opportunity than I would like, but I want the opportunity to come quick for the both of us, if that makes sense. It's not just... I'm not just a selfish one that I'm just making all these decisions for myself. I've got yeah, yeah. him to think about as well. And and he means the world to me, not just because he's he's, he's my brother-in-law, he's also one of my best mates. We're, we're kind of joined at the hip. So mm-hmm. the decisions that I'm, I'm kind of making day to day are based on trying to make sure that, that he's all right as well and, and everything's based on the both of us being, being looked after rather than obviously just one or the other. So um, I suppose life for me now is enjoying the kids, which I am, but... At the same time, I'm, I'm starting to cling the walls and I didn't want to go through divorce because of the missus no. kicks me out. Um, so um, she's, I, I think she's she's kind of pining that I get a job as soon as possible. She's I think a she patient like, woman. I think, she quite, I think she quite likes an empty house. Eh? So, um, <laughs> no, I just, I just, I just, listen, I went, I've got a smile on my face. I've, the season's only kicking off. I'm hopeful that I'll get some opportunities. Um, we obviously Rangers TV with different media outlets to do some games. I'll obviously cover a few games myself. I enjoy the academy. I enjoy watching my kids, which I've unfortunately not got to see really on a selfish note because I've I've been that fixated on trying to be the best coach, best manager I can possibly be, probably to the sacrifice of getting to watch my own kids. But it's just the way I am. It's it's not that I love them to bits. It's unfortunately I was on a path and kind of narrow minded to to try and be the best I can be, which ultimately is for them in the future. But um, now just. I'll just enjoy my time really and, and, and when any used boys ever want to speak to me then just, just pick up the phone I will definitely do that no, no two ways about it listen I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on I, I, I appreciate your your candidness over where you are now your, your time at the club your, your time with injury I, I particularly and I'm sure everyone will like um, hearing how passionately um, and how fondly he spoke about um, Walter Smith who is um, the legend of, of all legends as, as far as Rangers fans are concerned and, and rightly so Kevin I appreciate you coming on thanks very much thank you My pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me anytime.